We are continuing the Daniel Project today as we learn from Daniel's life what it means to live as exiles, far from our true home, but always close to God. And we have finished the first half of Daniel's book, which is comprised of six historical accounts from his life in exile in Babylon. And as you have been seeing, Daniel 1 through 6 plays out on the very familiar ground of narrative, of story. But the second half, Daniel 7 through 12, is something very different. It is written in a genre called apocalyptic literature. And in these uh, chapters, we're going to encounter four different visions that Daniel receives from God during his later years in exile. And as we're going to see, this is a very different territory that we're going to find ourselves in. Now, today's message is called Back to the Future because Daniel's visions take us back and they predict what is future for him. They predict some things that are maybe future for us. But I'm kind of thinking right now that some of you are a little worried about that, that Daniel 7 through 9 thing. Daniel 7, 8, and 9, and you're going three whole chapters today? You may be a little like a young boy in our church a couple of years ago, right after Home Goods opened. His mom went there, took him, and they walked into that store for the very first time. And this little boy looked around. He sighed very deeply. And he said, we're going to be here for a long time, aren't we? <laughs> and you may be wondering, are we going to be here for a really long time this morning? Well, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but we're going to do it uh, very quickly. We're going to be taking some big strides. We're going to be looking at the big picture, not so much focusing on every tiny little detail. And with that said, let's just dive in. As we work to understand this very important but very different part of God's Word, I want to help you to see three very big truths that help us to live wisely in a secular culture. Go ahead and write the first one down. It's this. There is a war... So expect serious problems. Let's just jump right in, right into the deep end of the pool. Uh, We'll read Daniel's first vision, which is in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. It begins this way. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and by the way, it's probably about 553 BC. This locates this, if you want to keep it in mind, between the events of Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Okay, So Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, as you read these words in Daniel 7, don't you immediately notice how different this new section is? We've been reading these stories for six chapters, true historical accounts given to us in narrative form with the purpose the author has of, of driving the point of these stories deep into our hearts. And the point the author has been making is what I've been telling you week after week. God is sovereign. God is in control. God rules over world events. He rules over our individual lives and our circumstances. And, and that's what Daniel has been telling us. It, but this time, suddenly, it gets kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, stormy oceans and strange beasts coming out of the oceans and lions and leopards with wings. And and then there's something different. It sounds, I don't know, like an evil Decepticon or something like that. And and what has happened is what I mentioned earlier. Daniel has switched now to a genre called apocalyptic literature. We, we find it not only in Daniel, but also in the book of Ezekiel and most notably in the book of Revelation. And we could say a lot about it, but let me just mention this. Apocalyptic literature uses graphic visual images that appeal to our senses in order to reveal God's message. We're not used to this, and a lot of people get confused with apocalyptic writing, and it's, it's like, ah, this is too strange, and I, I don't get it, I don't know what to think. But actually, you need to know this. The big point in apocalyptic is always absolutely clear. The, the Greek word apocalypsis uh, means to reveal, and, and that's why the Bible's last book is called Revelation. It reveals, and the big idea of revelation, just like The big idea of the book of Daniel is, once again, God is on his throne. God is in control. And we know that because God not only predicts the future, he guides every single detail of history. History is his story, and he tells it. See, Daniel 7 through 12, just like the book of Revelation, is is not given to us to satisfy our curiosity and for us to do a lot of speculating about things. It is given to us as God's people to strengthen our hope and strengthen our faith. Now, you may want to write this down because it's very important to keep in mind. It is very important when you're interpreting apocalyptic literature that you you not get bogged down in the details. Don't get bogged down. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Always remember as you are trying to understand the different details that these details are in service of the big truth. That's what they're really about. And people get into trouble a lot of times when they, when they go down to the tiny kind of granular details of a text and they try to, to just find parallels and these perfect matches, especially in the present day. And they go through Daniel 7 through 12 and they make these charts and they, and they try to precisely detail things like the timing of the rapture or different kinds of millennial kingdoms. And If that's what you're excited about hearing this morning, I just need to let you know right now, you're going to be disappointed. That's not what we're going to do, okay? I'm not going to do a whole lot of that because I think there's something more important for us to see. One author writes this, like Revelation, Daniel is essentially a book of pictures appealing to our senses. We are meant to see, hear, and smell the strange beasts that appear throughout this chapter This section of God's word is not meant to be an amusement for armchair theological sleuths. It is intended to give an overwhelming impression of the mysteries of God's purposes and the awful conflict that lies behind and beneath history. An overwhelming impression. Uh, It's like you're supposed to hear the roar of this great sea as it churns. Can you hear it? You're you're supposed to see these these strange, terrifying beasts, and you're supposed to be afraid. Maybe think of it this way. Just imagine smelling them. What must they have smelled like? I mean, that's what's supposed to happen here. And and, uh, if we don't get that, we're going to miss what God is trying to do. Maybe I could illustrate it in this way. It's kind of like the effect that a really good movie poster has on us. 
You know what I'm talking about, right? I'll give you one example. Here's one. Some of you have seen this, this movie. And what you see in this picture is it's night, and there's this massive, massive ocean wave, and there's this boat that's about to be capsized by this wave. And then it says the perfect storm. Now, you might not know anything in particular about this movie, but you look at that picture and you get that there's probably not going to be a lot of one-liners and jokes in this film, right? This is probably not going to be a love story. This is probably going to be really tense. There's going to be lots of conflict. People are probably going to die. There's going to be some disturbing things that take place just from looking at that picture. Uh, Let me show you one other. It's kind of a classic. Uh, Some of you remember this. And again, all you got to do is look at this picture and you know this is not a a rom-com, right? (laughs) Not a romantic comedy. That's not what's going to be happening in this picture, right? We just just know. Uh, I'll give you one more example. Never mind, never mind. We'll just leave that one alone. Well, you you get the idea what Daniel 7 is doing with these images. Now, we're going to see more of this sort of thing in the second vision. So I want you now to look at Daniel 8, and we're going to read verses 3 through 8. The setting is now two years later. It means it's about 551 BC. That means that we're still between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 in terms of chronology. And this is what is written. I looked up. And there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, again, lots of imagery, and this is just the nature of apocalyptic. And if you kind of just stop right here after reading all this, you might find yourself just thinking, this has no relevance for my life. Um, I think I'll just check my Instagram. (laughs) But there is rich meaning for us today. And we can thank God that some of these passages are interpreted for us. We read later in these two chapters. So what do we do with all this imagery? Now, I'm going to briefly give you some of the details. But as I give the details to you, I want you to keep in mind that it essentially comes down to this. Through all of these images that we see in these visions from God, Daniel is giving us a picture of history in the making so that we can know that God is in control so that we can have hope. Now, Daniel 7 is a broad picture of history, while Daniel 8 is a more focused and more particular view of that same history. In Daniel 7, verses 16 and 17, Daniel goes to one of the the people standing before the throne, probably an angel. He says, I approach one of those standing there and ask him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. So in Daniel 7, we see four kings leading four nations rising in succession, and they come from the sea. And by the way, you need to know in the Bible, people didn't want to have houses by the ocean. They weren't looking for you know, a beach retreat back then because the sea was not a good place in their mind. In fact, the sea was a place of danger and mystery. They, they saw the sea as a place of rebellion and chaos. And so this picture is that rebellion and chaos is being stirred up and blown in from all corners of the world. And we see four great beasts coming out of the sea. They are startling creatures. They come one after another. Most commentators uh, believe that these beasts correspond to the vision in Daniel 2. And so that means that this is the empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And it 
seems to make sense. And the first beast, which is a kind of a lion combined with an eagle, that's Babylon, the strength and majesty, speed and power of those two animals. And, and then the plucked off wings are meant to refer to Nebuchadnezzar's humbling, which we, we studied. And then the bear, this is the Medo-Persian empire. He's raised up on one side. This means that he's kind of deformed. One side is bigger than another. And and that, that speaks of the unequal division of power of these two groups of people that come together. He's got these three ribs in his mouth. And this is referring to three major kingdoms that the Medo-Persian empire conquered to become who they were. And then, and then he's told, eat more flesh. That is a prophecy about the coming, just in a few years after this, the coming, conquering, and defeat of the empire of Babylon. And then there's that leopard, and this leopard has four wings. And a leopard, of course, is known for its speed. It's just a great hunter, and you put wings on it, now it's even faster. This is referring to Alexander the Great and the the empire of Greece. And Alexander came to power at the age of just 21 after his father was assassinated. And historians tell us he was a very, very angry young man because of that. And in great anger, he takes his army and he crosses so quickly across the known world, destroying armies and nations everywhere. He he takes over the entire known world by the age of 32. But then he dies when he's 33. And the people who are behind him can't hold it all together. And so the kingdom is split up into four kingdoms led by four of his generals. And then the fourth beast. This beast, well, Daniel doesn't really know what to call it. He doesn't really have any words for it. It's a terrifying beast, and most scholars would see it referring to Rome because of its great, immense power, the ten horns and the iron teeth. It crushes everything in its path. And then there's that little horn, kind of some interesting details, probably refers to a a fairly unknown uh, king that's before the time of Christ, but many people also believe it has reference to the, the time when Christ comes back, therefore the Antichrist. Well, all of these things together, what's the point? Well, the point is these beasts are evil and powerful and destructive. The point is to paint a picture of powerlessness and hopelessness before this great, great evil. God is telling Daniel, write this down, so that people know that it's coming. Why? Well, God wants us to know that when it seems like evil is always having its way, when it seems like evil is always having the upper hand, it only seems that way. God is still in control. Nebuchadnezzar turns into Darius and Cyrus and turns into Alexander the Great and turns into Nero, and that turns into Hitler and Stalin and Mao, and and we just begin to see and feel this reality that evil is always at work, and it always seems like evil is having the upper hand, and we come to our day, and it's, it's ISIS and Islamic terrorism and other things, and God is just saying, I want you to see, I want you to know that the world's beastly kingdoms may rule, but they only rule for a little while. Their time has been allotted and decreed. And behind them, don't forget, behind them stands a God who rules over all. Behind them stands a heavenly court. And in that court, all the beasts will be finally judged and destroyed. See, Daniel 7 gives us the big picture, this big tumultuous sweep of world history. But then Daniel 8 gets more specific. And in Daniel 8, verses 20 and 21, we're told that the ram is Media and Persia, and the goat stands for Greece. And so we have kind of a repetition, another slice of this. And again, if you study it carefully, the historical precision is so fascinating. The ram's two horns speak of the Medes and Persians combining forces, and together they conquered everything in every direction. Nothing could stop them. And then, not too much later, this goat comes from the west moving so rapidly, like he's almost flying, doesn't even seem to touch the ground, just like Alexander mowed across the known world. And he comes and annihilates the ram, just like Alexander and his Greek army annihilated the Medo-Persian army. Now, again, some of you may be saying, well, I don't know, so what? I mean, 
Why should I care about these ancient nations? I mean, I haven't even heard of a lot of these, and they're not around anymore. I mean, why does this matter? Well, God is revealing, even to us today, the reality of the pervasive evil of this world that God's people always live in. Daniel 7 and 8 just make it so clear that there are forces in this world that are hostile to God, and they are very powerful, and they are very real, and therefore, therefore, the people of God can expect opposition and danger and suffering and persecution. And therefore, when those things come, God's people, there's two things they should not do. Write these down. They, they should not be surprised, and they should not give up. God says, don't be surprised. Don't give up. That's the big message. I'm in control. There's going to be trouble because we're in a war. So don't be surprised. Don't give up. And this just comes out really clearly in verse 21 where Daniel says, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Now, remember Daniel's history. He's seen his people defeated in battle. He has seen war waged against God's people, against Israel, and they had been defeated. That wasn't supposed to happen. They were God's people. They weren't supposed to be carried off into exile. That shook them to the core of their being. It shook their faith. And decades later, it still needed to be addressed. Daniel had seen a king tell his people they must choose idolatry or death. He had seen his friends thrown into a fiery furnace. A few years after this vision, he himself is going to be thrown into the den of lions for his faith. Those things, friends, they really happen. And those things still do happen. A few years ago, the New Yorker reported this secular source describing the persecution of the church in just one part of the world. Listen to these words. There was one girl in particular the soldiers talked about that evening, a girl on La Cruz whom they had raped many times during the course of that afternoon. And through it all, while the other women of El Mozote had screamed and cried, this girl had sung hymns, strange evangelical songs. And she had kept right on singing, too, even after they had done what had to be done and shot her in the chest. She had lain there in La Cruz with the blood flowing from her chest and had kept on singing, a bit weaker than before, but still singing. And the soldiers, stupefied, had watched and pointed. Then they had grown tired of the game and shot her again, and she sang still. And their wonder began to turn to fear until finally they had unsheathed their machetes and hacked through her neck. And at last, the singing stopped. Friends, that really happened. That's a real person who loved Jesus. She knew about the war against the saints And it's easy for us to forget, but thousands and thousands and thousands of our brothers and our sisters down through the centuries and all around us in the world right now, they know about it too. See, it's really no surprise to see Daniel's reaction to these visions. If you read these chapters, what you see again and again, Daniel is alarmed and appalled by the suffering that God's people will endure. And I want to say this to you before I read these next verses. If you can study these prophecies and kind of casually work your way through them, sitting in a chair, sipping a cup of coffee and thinking, that's interesting, that's nice, and it doesn't move you, it doesn't appall and alarm you, then you don't know what Daniel is talking about. You're missing the point. This is what Daniel did, how he responded. Verse 15 of chapter 7. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And then Daniel 7, verse 28. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And then in the end of chapter 8, verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. These visions show us, 
that God's people in this evil, broken, fallen world are either suffering or one day they will suffer. And we need to be reminded about this. We are not meant to read these chapters casually and just play our little game of theological, trivial pursuits. See, I wonder if some people do this today because we just don't want to deal with this message about God's people suffering. We, we just don't like that idea, right? I mean, follow God and suffer? I mean, I, I might go so far as to say that maybe even some of us, we signed up for the Christian faith because we thought that if we follow Jesus, that'll take away our suffering. You know, become a Christian and you will get your best life now. And Daniel was telling God's people back then, no, you're here in exile for at least 70 years. You're here for the long haul and for some of you for the rest of your life. So don't be surprised. Don't give up. That's the message. And that just raises a question today that we need to confront. We need to grapple with what Daniel is describing. Please understand this is not strange for most Christians throughout history. It's strange for us. We haven't experienced much of this type of suffering and persecution. And so here's the question that, that I want us to grapple with. I really would encourage you to write it down in some way. If persecution came to our front door, would we be ready? Are you willing to ask yourself that question? I mean, could we persevere, remain faithful in the face of pressure, in the face of harassment, even in the face of persecution? Do you know that right now, and you can look this up, it's easy to find the information. Right now, right now, all around the world, believers are facing persecution. In North Korea, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Sudan, in Iran, in Syria, in Nigeria, in India, in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, in Myanmar, in Indonesia, in China, on and on and on. Men and women who are being harassed Taken, uh, losing their jobs, losing homes, some of them facing the penalty of death, given the option, you either recant your faith or you will die, and they refuse to do it. They'd rather give up their lives than turn their backs on God. See, here's the deal. If that happened here to us, what would we do? Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, this would never happen here. We live in America. We don't even need to think about that. Maybe not. But if it did, would we make it? And I just want to tell you, I, I don't think that a lot of people who profess Christ in America would. I think if persecution comes, there may be people that you're sitting by and they will just vanish. You won't see them. They will, they will go about their business. They will separate themselves because the reality is they are cultural Christians. They don't really know the Lord. It's a family thing or it's a cultural thing or it's something to help them with their life's problems. And so they turned away. We need to ask ourselves whether it ever happens or not, would we make it? Would we remain faithful? Do we love Jesus Christ in such a way that we would lay down our lives for the one who laid down his life for us? Is Jesus that beautiful, that good, that worthy to us? Are we ready? Are we ready? Now, if I ended all this right here, it would be really depressing and pessimistic, right? But you need to know, and this may surprise you, apocalyptic really isn't pessimistic. It's real. I mean, it tells you that things are the way they actually are, that people are evil and, and, and the world is always in this state of turmoil and, and pain and suffering around us. But, but the purpose is to bring comfort to people in exile people far, far from their true home, but close to God. It reminds to them, it reveals to them what God wants to do on their behalf. And that takes us to the second big truth. Go ahead and write this down. There is a throne, so God will set all things right. 
That's what these chapters are telling us. Go back uh, to chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 again. This is what it says. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So thrones were set in place, and we're told the Ancient of Days took his seat on the throne. And that phrase really is a a word about God, who he is, and and a word about God doing what he does. He is sealing the destiny of this world. Daniel goes on to describe the character of this one, the Ancient of Days. And again, he's using imagery to, to try to give us an idea of what God is like. But what's behind it all is this truth that thrones were set in place and God took his seat. We're being told through all the details that God is going to make things right. See, we just live. We just live in this sorry, fallen, broken world where so many horrible things happen. And all of us, all of us, we find ourselves shaking our heads and wondering, will there ever be any justice? Daniel is telling us one day there will. One day, the Ancient of Days will take his seat. There is a throne, and it will be occupied. And so that means in this world of justice, don't despair because there is a throne. And again, Daniel, Daniel knew all about injustice. I mean, think about his life. He was captured and exiled by one king. He was discarded by another. He was thrown into a lion's den by a third. He suffered deep pain, and he saw his people suffering deep pain again and again from people who were in seats of power. And he must have wondered, will justice ever be served? God says, the day is coming. There is a throne. Daniel says this one seated on the throne is very wise. He is the ancient of days. And we're, we're, we're meant to understand God's vast wisdom because he has lived forever. And we are being told that everyone who defies God will one day experience justice beyond our wildest ability to imagine. And that means some things for our lives. I'm going to give you three things that are very, very practical things that you can take from this truth. Go ahead and write them down. The first thing is this. I can trust God to judge. That means I I don't need to take justice into my own hands in this world of injustice. Romans 12, 19, Paul says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Justice is coming. And there are some of you here, and during times of your life, maybe most of your life, I don't know, you have been treated very unfairly by someone who occupies a seat of power. Maybe your boss, maybe a business partner, maybe someone with a lot of money cheated you out of what belonged to you. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt you deeply, and maybe you are here today, and the thought that they will get away with what they did is just eating you up, and you've been carrying a grudge against them. You've been hoping that bad things will happen to them. And the truth is, it's destroying you inside. God is saying, the day is coming when I will come in power and I will set all things right. And every person who is wounded, who is hated, who has defied my laws, who has done evil, all those things that we think today that people are getting away with, I will take the throne. Justice will rule. Therefore, my people, you can let it go. Therefore, you can forgive. Therefore, you can trust me to judge. Verse 9 says, his clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. This is a, a picture of purity and a very common image in scripture. You've read it many places like Isaiah, which says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And so we're being told that this God, ancient of days, seated on the throne, he is perfectly holy, utterly pure, utterly good. Throughout all eternity, God has never done anything, never spoken a word, never, never entertained a thought that was anything less than noble and honorable and true and beautiful and good. That's all he's ever known or ever done. And you're meant to think to yourself, how could we not love a God like that? So good. But there's an important implication here too for us. Jesus 
said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, everyone who has this hope, this hope of the returning Christ, this hope that God will set things right one day, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as God is pure. And so it reminds us of something we don't like to think about, especially while we're thinking about all those bad, evil, wicked, horrible people out there who God needs to judge. What about us? What about our sin? It's not just them, those people out there that need to be set right. It's us too. Are you here today and there's something in your life and you know it, you know, you know that you are living in disobedience to God's clear commands and God needs to purify that. Are you willing for him to purify that? It may involve your finances. You are doing some things financially and you know it's wrong. It may involve truth telling. You've got some patterns of deception and deceit in your life and you know it. This may involve problems in the area of your sexuality. Maybe, maybe it's that you just have a real judgmental heart inside you. It could be many things, but what needs in your life to be purified and cleaned up? What do you need to confess to God and allow him to forgive you for? Everyone who has this hope purifies himself, the apostle John says. So that's the ancient of days. He's pure. And then Daniel talks about another aspect of God. His throne, he says, was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And again, fire is this image of God's awesome power, like the burning bush that was not consumed or the pillar of fire that delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh or the fire of heaven that Elijah called down to defeat the prophets of of Baal. This is just power, power from God. So I just want to ask you today, is there any place in your life where you need God's power? We studied this a few months back in our our trek through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. Our God's not tame. He's not safe. He is an awesomely powerful God. And, And we see how great and powerful he is in these chapters. Look again at verse Uh, 11 in chapter 7 for a moment. Daniel says, then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So this great terrifying beast that Daniel doesn't quite know what to make of with this large iron teeth and 10 horns. It's very terrifying. It's more powerful than all the other beasts. And, you know, in our day, if this was God and the beast, there would be like a movie and it would be this knockdown, drag out fight, back and forth, back and forth. It'd go on and on, right? You know how they do it in the movies? That's not what happens here. God just kind of goes, and it's over. He just flicks his finger. He just says, I'm done. And it's done. See, that's what happens. Daniel says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed. No contest because this is an infinite God and his power cannot be challenged by any force in the universe. God allows spiritual struggle in this world to go on because he has bigger plans that we may or may not understand. But when he's done, when the time is up, Once he decides, the struggle is over. Once he decides, there's nothing left to wait around for. Then the time of judgment comes. And when that happens, he's not going to need a lot of his firepower to win the battle. God's not going to have to, you know, actually rub up a lot of octane to finish it off. It won't be a long struggle. God is omnipotent and Satan cannot exist for a second if it were not for the sustaining power of God. All God has to do, friends, is just stop thinking of him and he's done. And that means this third thing that we can learn. We can trust God to win. God's going to win. And we need to know that when life is hard and when evil is, seems to be strong. You see, whatever kingdoms these incredible images represent, whenever these events that Daniel is, is describing are, are going to take place in time and space and history, wh- whatever they are, whenever they are, there is a throne. And God rules from that throne. And then they look at verses 13 and 14 again. It says, in my vision at night, I looked and 
There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Again, there is a throne. God will bring justice. But stop and think what that means. If every single person who's ever lived is going to stand before the throne of God, the throne of judgment, and be brought to justice, that includes you, that includes me, and you have to ask this question, how many of us think we could stand before the Ancient of Days? And I think Daniel's actually wrestling with this. Part of this is kind of shown later on in chapter 9, where Daniel, who's such a man of integrity and, and real righteousness, you read chapter 9, he's confessing his own sin. We're kind of scratching our heads. But Daniel evidently sees the truth that he too is sinful and he too needs mercy. So what gives Daniel hope? And it's actually right here, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. These verses are a prophetic text. Now, again, we tend to read these prophecies kind of casually today, we see them and think, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's, that's nice. But you need, to, you need to pull yourself back into those and think about what they're really doing and telling us. You, you need to feel the emotional impact of predictions that actually come to pass in real space and time. I mean, think about it. Just even this weekend, anybody notice how you know, the weather forecast has gotten changed three or four times? It's going to rain, then it's not going to rain. Oh, it's going to rain again. We can't even get that right 24 hours in advance. And yet, you study this, you will see in the details, we are, we are reading in these chapters incredible, precise predictions about future kingdoms and future empires centuries sometimes before they, they even happen. And I wish we had more time to go over them. But then right here, just one, in verses 13 and 14, we have a prophecy of something that's going to happen, as we know now, six centuries later, the birth of Christ. And it is one of the most profound and powerful messianic passages about who Christ will be. But you also need to see something. It is, it is written by a Jewish man. You go, yeah, I know that. But I, I want you to think about that. It's written by a Jewish man. That means Daniel is fiercely monotheistic. He grew up learning the Shema. There is just one God. Commentators who study this say there is absolutely no way that he could have made up what he's writing down, that, that he doesn't even have this category of one God in multiple persons. And did you notice what it said? God is telling the people around the throne to worship another being. That would make God an idolater, wouldn't it? Think through it. Son of man approaches the throne. So far, so good. Most of the time in the Bible, that's this phrase just used to speak of a human being. And this son of man comes before the ancient of days. He's presented before him and he stands before God. He stands before this fiery river of judgment and he does not fall. He is not vanquished before it. See, that's a clue. Tells us what's coming. And then it says that God gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom. It says that God tells all peoples everywhere to worship and serve him. It says that he has an everlasting dominion and kingdom. So do you see this as human elements? But there's something divine here too. I mean, who is this? One like a son of man, one like a son of God. Who is this, Daniel? And this is absolutely indecipherable to Daniel. He doesn't know. He just writes down what he sees. But we know. We know. Have you noticed in the New Testament when Jesus came, how he often used this messianic title of son of man from the book of Daniel? Do you know that this was his favorite self-designation? He would say, I'm the son of God, but I am coming as a humble son of man. I'm coming not to be served, but to serve. You know, actually, this year's season of Advent starts next Sunday. And in that season, as we come up to Christmas, what we celebrate 
is Jesus' first advent, his first coming into the world when he came as a humble servant, born in Bethlehem as a baby, and he lived a, a peasant life, and he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave, and he launched God's kingdom through that. Son of man. But we're told in the Bible here and in many other places, one day he's coming again, and that's going to be his second advent or his second coming And when he comes then, he's going to come as a warrior. He's going to come as a judge. And it reminds us that God is in control, that God will one day judge and one day make all things right. Now, you hear all of this, and what do you do in response? Well, a temptation for many of us when we hear again and again what the Bible says again and again, that God is in control and that we can trust him and he's going to work all things out according to his plan. The temptation for some of us is to think, well, I don't need to do anything. I can kind of kick back and relax and watch God do his thing. But the Bible never says that. Here's the third big truth. And let me give this to you really quickly. It's this, we have a calling, so we must faithfully persevere. God is in control. So what do we do with that? We are not to do what we sometimes feel tempted to do and think we have no responsibility to think that my actions don't matter. And we see this in Daniel's life. Look again at verse 27, chapter eight. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then what's next? He says, then I got up and went about the king's business. Daniel continued to serve in the way and the place and the time that God had given to him. He went about the king's business. He faithfully persevered. Sometimes when people think about God's sovereign control over this world, they will think to themselves or they will say, why should I even pray? I mean, if God's going to do it anyway, why should I pray? Why do my prayers matter? Anybody ever thought that? Anybody ever wondered about that? Anybody ever heard someone say something like that? Daniel didn't think that. Look at the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It says, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Now we're, now we're into the 530s, so you know, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer, in petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel, here's this prophecy, and it's actually kind of cool to think about it. Daniel, who writes scripture, is reading another part of the scripture and learning from it. He reads the prophecy of Jeremiah. He writes it all down. And then what's the very next thing that he does? Well, you keep reading this chapter. He prays. He prays. God says to him, I'm in control of all of history. But see, that doesn't end your responsibility. Why should I pray? Well, the answer really is that is why you should pray, because God is sovereign. Daniel's now in his 80s. He's, he reads a prophet. He, he sees that the exile is going to last 70 years. He realizes, I've been here almost 70 years. He realizes that the time is almost up. The end of the exile is coming. But Daniel doesn't say, I'm going to pack my bag so I can go home. He says, God has promised it. Now I'm going to beg God for it. I'm going to pray and I'm going to plead with God to do what God has already promised to do. That's actually Daniel 9, 1 through 11. You see, no matter how difficult our lives may be, no matter how much we suffer, God is in control. There is a throne and God will set all things right. So therefore, we can faithfully persevere. We must pray. And as we pray, we can know God hears. I'm going to show you something else. Look at chapter 9, 20 to 23. Daniel says, after his prayer, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, Daniel, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. That is so good. 
Some of your translations say, Daniel, you are greatly loved. The New Testament tells all of us who know Jesus Christ, know the Father through his Son. Oh, how great is the lavish love the Father has poured out on us, for we are his children. We are called his children. God loves us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, and that gives us strength to persevere. You know, there's a lot of more details in these passages, days and weeks and, and numbers. And so I want to encourage you as you read them, and I hope you will read them again and think about them again and pray through them again. Always remember there is a throne and God is in control. And that means one day he will set all things right. There's one more thing, one more thing you need to see. One day we will reign with him forever. That deserves an amen. It's all through these, these visions. Daniel 7, 18 says, but the saints of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Amen? amen. Verse 22, the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the most high and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Amen? amen. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the most high. Friends, God is in control. That means we can work and we can serve and we can pray. We can faithfully persevere because we know no matter what happens in this world, no matter how much we suffer, no matter the evil in this world, God is going to win and we're going to win with him. We're going to reign forever with him. And that's what we need to know. That's what God is telling us. That's what he wants us to take from his word. Hear the word of the Lord today. And all God's people said, would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we give you thanks. We ask that as we have heard uh, so many different things, Lord, this morning that may confuse us or cause us to ponder, would you open our hearts, Lord, and open our minds uh, to, to think and pray and understand and then, Lord, to act, to obey. And Father, uh, you have brought each of us here in your sovereign will. And you have reasons for each one of us to be here this morning. There are, there are truths and principles and, and there are words, Lord, that you want us to hear. And you know what those are, Lord. And I just ask by your Holy Spirit that you would make those things clear in very particular ways to each of us who is gathered this morning. May we hear your heart for us. And Lord, may we be people of integrity who don't rebel against you, but who humbly submit to you, your sovereign, merciful, loving hand. And we do what you tell us. And Father, if there's anyone here right now, and Lord, they're kind of looking in from the outside, and maybe they've come to try to understand who you are. Lord, I pray that right now, by your Holy Spirit's power, you would open their eyes. They would see Jesus. And they would understand their need to turn from their sin in repentance. And that you would give them the power to trust in Jesus and his death on the cross. And Lord, they would be saved. Sins forgiven. Adoption into your family, Lord. And hope for eternal life. Lord, you love us so much. It's beyond our ability to conceive Help us to sense and feel and know your great love for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We, we pray, Father, these things now in his holy name, the name of Jesus. And all God's people say.